0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. Are you one of the thousands of Americans who got a new puppy or dog during the pandemic? The demand was certainly good news for many shelter animals who needed a home. My family's beloved lab mix, Sydney, passed away last November after 14 years in our family. So in late February, we welcomed a new dog from Mississippi into our home. Skipper, now Wally, has been loving the fact we've been home so many days since March. What is it about dogs that causes us to seek them out for companionship? Today, where we live, we talk with canine cognition researcher, Brian Hare. What questions do you have about dogs? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Brian Hare joins us on Zoom. He's Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Duke University, co-director of the Duke Canine Cognition Center, and he's co-author of a new book with Vanessa Woods, Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins, and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity, Brian, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be with you and to hear about Skipper.
0: <laughs> Wally. Oh, we Wally, like Wally, sorry. He was Skipper, and then he became Wally. But uh, yeah, Skipper is a pretty good name. <laughs> My children uh, appreciated the new name, uh, Wally. Uh, Brian, a lot of people probably recognize uh, your name because of your book, The Genius of Dogs. that came out, I believe, like, gosh, back in 2013. Why is canine science, how, how has it um, gotten so popular over the last uh, decade?
1: Well, uh, it is true that um, scientists really didn't pay much attention to dogs. They're, they didn't really have a special place in any way. They were just kind of another animal you could potentially study. Um, and in the late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of discoveries were made about um, their social skills and how dogs are special in their understanding of humans. In particular, they're very good at reading our gestures. When we communicate to each other, we point and we look in directions to try to tell people what we're looking at or we can understand that somebody sees something that we can't see and we can learn about the world that way. And for kids, it ends up that's a really important thing for uh, setting up learning language and participating in culture. So it ends up dogs are really, really good at this. This thing that's so important for kids to begin to do as they learn language and participate in culture and great apes, I'm talking chimpanzees and bonobos, are not so good at those things. So it, it set up this really interesting puzzle of why this distant relative would be so much like us in this skill that is so important to becoming human. And so then there was, the race was on. <laughs> uh, all, uh, a whole host of scientists got fascinated by, wait a second, why are dogs uh, able to do these types of social problems?
0: We're going to be talking about dog cognition and evolution with Brian Hare uh, throughout this hour. But before we get there, uh, we know that we're in this pandemic. Uh, COVID-19 cases, unfortunately, are continuing to rise. And uh, through this pandemic, uh, PCR testing has become very important to detect uh, who's infected And we need to know this to help stop the spread but there's also a number of researchers who are investigating right now whether dogs are able to detect whether a person is COVID 19 positive brian what can you tell us about this
1: yeah so the you know dogs are used for a a lot of different types of uh, detection work detecting uh olfactory cues or um you know scents uh or smell using their smell to find things um, and so they can be quite good at detecting a variety of things we'd be familiar with, like detecting explosive uh, agents, um, uh, you know, just detecting um, where an animal is. But the surprise recently, and it was even a surprise for me because um, I don't train dogs for detection, but we, I, I have studied dogs that are used in detection. And uh, so I know enough about the little literature to know that uh, you know dogs are incredible at picking up things. But even I was surprised um, that they can detect volatile organic compounds that are released by the human body when they are infected by a virus. And even uh, more amazing is it seems that they can pick up specific. Volatile organic chemical, or sorry, compounds um, when you're infected by certain types of viruses. And so that led to the question well, can they do that with COVID? Mm -hmm. Uh, People who are infected. And so then uh, people got really uh, motivated to see if they could train dogs to detect people who are infected or not. And uh, the best data seems to suggest that dogs can. Uh, And in fact, uh, you know, the the most successful dogs can be 100 percent correct in identifying a sample uh, that is uh, from a person who is infected uh, or a sample that is from a person who's uninfected based on detecting these. uh, The the hypothesis is that they're detecting these volatile organic organic compounds. It's not the virus itself. It's Hmm. it's. Um, compounds being released by somebody who is infected.
0: That's really fascinating, but you said something that's important that not all of our dogs, whether it's they can maybe smell out these compounds uh, that could show someone's COVID-19, but these dogs also need training to communicate that uh, to uh, us.
1: That's right. And so uh, they're, they're, Groups in Auburn University, uh, University of Pennsylvania, and several other places in the United States. Um, there are also places working uh, in Europe uh, on this, and there may be other places worldwide that I don't know about, but I'm, I know about the others. And so, what they do is they they bring dogs in, and the first problem they had to solve. And I was on I was on some phone calls about this where people didn't weren't sure what to do um, when this all first uh, started. Uh, first thing you got to do is, I mean, what are you going to train them to detect? And obviously you don't, you know, if you could not use the virus, that would be good because (laughs) um, to study the virus itself, you have to have a very sophisticated laboratory and you have to do a lot to keep everybody safe. So the realization came that, wait a second, what if you could use some – you know, if you use the clothes of somebody or you used, you know, basically something they were wearing and it ends up that um, the, the realization came, came, for instance, there's a team in France that realized that you could um, if you could wipe somebody's underarm, it sounds not very attractive, but if you could wipe somebody's underarm and uh, the sweat that was absorbed in a clean cloth could be used as the, Um, uh, target for the olfactory training and uh, that's what was done and it ends up those are the dogs where I've read the paper and they of the eight dogs they trained I believe it was four of them uh, could discriminate if you had uh, basically eight different containers and one of them had the uh, cloth with the sweat from somebody infected um, and the others didn't they could detect 100% of the time Uh, where the cloth was. And then they're trained, as you said, to communicate. Uh, They have to tell you somehow. And it's very simple. They just sit down in front of Mm. the container where they believe that the target smell is. So it seems based on human sweat of someone who's infected, a dog can tell and discriminate that from someone who's not infected and they sit down. So Uh, It's an active area of research. People are still trying to confirm uh, how good dogs are. But I do know that in some places in Europe, some dogs have been deployed, even at airports, um, to uh, try to help with screening.
0: You're hearing Brian Hare here on Where We Live, Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Duke University and co-director of the Duke Canine Cognition Center. As we talk more about a dog intelligence, we know there are a lot of dog lovers out there. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I mentioned this Canine Cognition Center at Duke, Brian, and you're involved with a lot of research uh, on uh, with puppies. Can you talk about this puppy kindergarten?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, it it actually connects nicely to the conversation we were just having about dogs doing jobs, because dogs actually, believe it or not, have more jobs than ever. Um, And uh, you'd think that they would sort of in the age of the Internet and um, everything else, as technology keeps going, artificial intelligence, robots, et cetera. what, what? possibly could dogs have to offer they have more jobs than ever actually in fact every time I turn around people are training them to do new things and so what one of the things we work on at Duke is we don't actually train the dogs to do the different jobs what we're curious about is what you mentioned earlier is how do you identify the best dogs for the job they will be best for Um, and so we've tried to come up with sort of think of it as like a a standardized aptitude test or a standardized set of games they can play that give us an idea of what their strengths are in terms of problem solving. Um, and then see what does that predict about what they're going to be able to learn and how quickly or how well they'll perform in a different job. Um, and so, uh, you know, if, if for instance, the dogs that are being used to uh, detect COVID, if it really does end up that that is something that uh, governments and cities, munis- municipalities uh, become, uh, or even hospitals get excited about. Um, the challenge will be, dogs are really, really good at this. But which dogs? How to find them? And then, of course, how do we increase the supply? Because you, you have to take what will be a few dozen dogs and turn it into thousands uh, of dogs or more. Uh, and so that's always the challenge with dogs doing jobs is how do you find or, and train enough of the best dogs? So that's the reason we're studying puppies at Duke is the Holy Grail is what if when they're really young, uh, 8 to 10 to 12 weeks old, we could tell you based on a set of uh, uh, games that we could play with them uh, to see how they solve problems and how they learn – that this dog really has high potential for passing training, and this dog is unlikely to pass training unless we have some intervention. Because it ends up that in all the different training programs for all the different jobs that dogs do, uh, you know, in general, about 50% are going to pass the training and qualify. So the question is, how do you get that number up so we have a bigger supply of all these dogs doing these amazing things for us?
0: When we think about how dogs have been working alongside humans uh, for such a long time, that's because they've also evolved to understand how we work, Brian.
1: That's right. So, we, you know, I mentioned that earlier is that was sort of the, one of the reasons that now there is um, a Yale Canine Cognition Center <laughs> that, there in your local area. Yeah. Um, it, and, you know, there are a lot of people across the country and across the world studying canine cognition. In the 90s, there was nobody studying canine cognition. Now there's dozens of centers all over the world and it's pretty exciting. And it's because there was this discovery that dogs have this special social skill to understand us. Um, And it actually is telling us a lot about ourselves. So the story of how it was discovered and then um, how we started to think about its evolution, how uh, dogs may have evolved through domestication and how domestication shaped their cognition um, has really pointed not just to um, answers about how our best friends came to be the way that they are, but it's also helped us understand ourselves. So uh, that's why there continues to be so much enthusiasm about dogs, because they're helping us understand ourselves, too.
0: Uh, I have to ask, I assume you're a dog lover, Brian, when you were in grad school, was there a, a moment when you were thinking about your dog, Oreo, and how uh, he or she learned uh, where you got interested in studying dog cognition?
1: Yeah, so my story is I actually was um, studying chimpanzees uh, and other primates and really excited about doing it. And I was having a conversation with my undergraduate advisor, and we were finding that uh, Chimpanzees, as brilliant as they are, they're amazing. And bonobos too, uh, our other closest relative, Um, as brilliant as they are, they don't really understand these um, gestures when you're trying to cooperate and communicate with them. They understand gestures in other situations, like if you're saying go away, for instance, and you kind of say shoo, shoo, or another chimpanzee (laughs) says shoo, shoo to another, they get that. But if you try to help them find something, you point to where something is, they just have no idea what you're saying. And it's this really weird phenomenon that they just don't get it. And so we were talking about that and we were talking about how important it is as children develop and all of us around nine, 12 months of uh, age, uh, normally developing person begins to understand that when mom and dad points to something in a direction, oh, they want me to look there. Oh, there must be something interesting. There's something I don't know about. Uh, They're trying to help me. And it's sort of the first window that, humans have into other humans minds, we start thinking about others in a new way. And so uh, my advisor was saying that this is something that must have evolved uh, in human evolution, and is completely unique to our species. And then that is where Oreo, uh, my pet dog came into the story. I said, Well, I think my dog does that. Um, And so that kind of started (laughs) the whole thing, because it ends up my dog didn't do that, like, almost everybody's dog does this. Um, and, uh, so we've been studying this phenomenon ever since.
0: You're hearing Brian Hare here on Where We Live as we talk more about a dog cognition and evolution with him. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. You can ask your question on Facebook or search on Twitter at Where We Live. Diane asked when we were talking about all of the jobs that dogs have. She wanted to know, is there one breed that's any more in tune to this ability to discover viruses, Brian? What do we know?
1: Well, I do know that... um... Uh, there is a preference among the groups uh, that are doing this to work with um, either, uh, you know, traditional working breeds like shepherds and uh, retrievers. Um, Now, there are other breeds of dogs that are trained in detection work. In fact, um, for instance, like the USDA, uh, historically at airports when they were trying to detect, um, contraband, um, they were using beagles, but in fact, now they use shelter dogs, um, that come from a range of, um, uh, you know, their, uh, mutts and mixed breeds and, you know, uh, so, uh, the truth is, I, I don't think we know that one breed is somehow significantly better than another. I think that their preferences that um, have to do with other variables other than just, Oh, this breed is the right one. Um, or this is the only one that can do this. I think there are other breeds, but then the people sort of just settle on, uh, you know, we really think Labradors are the right thing. Labrador retrievers are the right thing for this job. Um, and so then that becomes the breed that becomes very popular for that. Um, and they do a good job, but it doesn't mean that there's not another breed that could have been chosen or that a mix of breeds couldn't be chosen and do equally well.
0: Brian Hare is co-author of the new book, Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity. We'll talk more about his research after the break. You can join us to 888-720-9677. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Domesticated dogs outnumber wolves by the millions. Is it because they evolved to be friendlier with humans than wolves? My guest has many thoughts on this. He studies dog evolution. He has a new book out, Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity. Brian Hare is a professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University and co-director of the Duke Canine Cognition Center. So, Brian, we know that dogs, Dogs are directly descended from wolves, but tell us more about the origin of dogs.
1: Yeah, so I think dogs are exhibit A uh, for something that at first seems counterintuitive. And the counterintuitive thing is that in life uh, and in nature, friendliness wins and it wins big more often than not. And dogs really are the greatest example of this because uh, based on the best evidence we have, uh, almost certainly dogs began evolving before humans had agriculture. They evolved uh, from wolves through interactions with humans that were living as foragers. And those interactions almost certainly uh, began as humans were creating more trash and more garbage around uh, increasingly uh, dense uh, and Uh, longer inhabited settlements. Uh, They became reliable sources for wolves to sneak in and be attracted to and be friendly towards those uh, individuals. Uh, And the the wolves that were able to be attracted and not fearful and uh, interact in a non-aggressive way uh, were at an advantage. They were the wolves that had a a really easy uh, food source. Um, and as a result, we know from uh, animals that have been experimentally domesticated uh, that when you select for friendliness in this way, where fear is replaced with an attraction and friendliness, that you also have all sorts of changes in the body uh, in terms of, um, of both what you look like and even the chemistry of your body. Uh, and that it's all a result of uh, this selection for friendliness. And so the title of the book, Survival the Friendliest, is really to uh, directly take on this uh, typical misconstrual of evolution and evolutionary research, you know, and we all know survival the fittest. Um, But that term has been really misconstrued to suggest that, you know, you have to be the big alpha. And um, if your group is somehow uh, winning, that you're superior and that, you know, in the case of humans, that can even be misunderstood to mean that, oh, the, the group that is somehow winning uh, is, you know, more valuable and deserves more things. And so uh, that is not at all what this core biological idea means. Uh, it, it, survival of the fittest, of course, just is talking about your ability to survive and reproduce. And friendliness, as the title suggests, of our new book, Survival of the Friendliest, is really the big winning strategy if you step back and look at nature and more generally. Uh, and dogs are just a great example of this. Mm-hmm.
0: So, talk more about uh, when you mentioned, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, uh, when we think about uh, wolves, uh, certain wolves seen uh, humans as food sources because of the garbage uh, that they left. And uh, there's evidence that dogs domesticated themselves uh, so that they. So humans would not be afraid of them and they'd be able to get closer to to, to humans?
1: Yeah. So that's the idea of Mm self-domestication. So so what we think domestication is, first of all, um, it takes genetic evolution. So you can't just take a baby animal and raise it with humans and then it's domesticated. That would be taming an animal. Um, But when it had offspring, its offspring would not be tame, you'd have to retame them every time because there hasn't been any genetic evolution. So domestication is genetic evolution where there's selection and uh, selection when you uh, have friendly animals breeding together and, and surviving and having a survival advantage, um, that can cause domestication. Uh, and, and basically when you have an increase in friendliness due to a, a pressure like that where friendly animals are at an advantage... Um, that can then lead to things like floppy ears and curly tails and um, you know more a, a more tame uh, or docile uh, behavioral response to others. And so we know that because of experiments where people have actually, through artificial selection, humans choosing who breeds, um, create this domestication um, response by selecting for friendly animals. So we think that just happened in nature. Uh, where uh, in nature, as humans uh, in the last um, uh, 25,000 years became more and more successful, they started living uh, in um, higher density uh, areas. They started living in places for longer. um, They created a lot of garbage, and that garbage is the same stuff that wolves eat. um, And so a wolf that could sneak in and get access to that uh, would be an advantage over wolves that were sort of like, yeah, I'm going to go hunting today and I might not catch anything and I might get injured. Um, if you can go in and find the garbage pit, it's in the same place every day and it's not going to run away. Um, so you'd be at a real advantage, but you have to get over your fear. You have to be non-aggressive. You have to be able to, um, you know, not have any kind of bad interaction with the humans that you'd have to be, you know, get into close proximity with.
0: How does the fact that, you know, we know wolves live in packs, did that, that's a type of social structure? Did that have something to, uh, is that important for uh, the wolf to, you know, think about, you know, getting closer to a human, maybe seeing it as a a different pack?
1: I mean, that's totally possible. Um, You know, it certainly is the case that uh, wolves are very uh, socially bonded um, and they are, um, uh, you know, they absolutely rely on each other to cooperate, to survive. And so, um, you know, it was two cooperative species that uh, both make a living by hunting other animals. Um, So we eat many of the same things. And, um, uh, you know, I think it was a natural partnership, even though on its surface, it doesn't, it wouldn't seem to make sense, but uh, I would say that, um, and I say it wouldn't make sense because wolves and humans um, before, uh, wolves began began to self-domesticate and be attracted to human settlements. Um, uh, you know, wolves are directly competing with humans uh, for food uh, in the Pleistocene. In this period, we're talking about when when uh, dogs began to um, evolve. Um, so. Uh, You know, it's not necessarily if we were to travel back 50,000 years ago, it's not necessarily a natural partnership you would have predicted. Um, (laughs) But uh, I think now, once we've understood that you can have selection for friendliness have such a big effect, not just on behavior, but psychology and the body. um, We've started to look around nature and see a lot of examples of this um, where species have selection for friendliness and it really changes everything and it makes, it gives them a huge advantage. So I'll just give you one concrete, uh, other example that we think has been shaped in a similar way is, um, cleaner wrasse. There's, it's a type of fish and you're probably familiar with them if you've watched any nature documentaries, because they're kind of a frequent example on nature documentaries. These are the fish that clean the mouths of predatory fish so cleaner wrasse, they're called cleaners because they swim around in the mouths and pick off the parasites of other fish. So that's the exact same situation. There's this little tiny fish that had to evolve to not be afraid of predators, but actually be attracted to predators, swim towards them, and in fact even swim into their mouths to clean their mouths. And so uh, that caused this you know, huge opportunity for this type of fish Uh, to get a reliable uh, source of food. And so uh, that's a great example of another case in nature. The other one is, um, and my final one, is uh, what's going on right now with uh, coyotes and deer and other uh, species that are um, uh, increasingly uh, invading or re-inhabiting, whichever way you want to think about it, uh, suburban and urban environments because they're finding lots of food in, in our um, highly densely uh, populated areas. And uh, people aren't uh, normally hunting, so it's kind of safe in a way. And so there's some evidence, um, very nice evidence, that, the, that for certain species, especially some mammals, um, suburban and urban areas are increasingly becoming um, a favored habitat.
0: Mm, it's interesting you bring that up, Brian, because here in Connecticut, certain parts of our state, are, they're seeing a, a big population of black bears and these bears know where the food is. Uh, people who fill their bird feeders a uh, year round and, um, you know, don't uh, lock down their garbage uh, very well. The bears know and they keep coming back each time.
1: So that that's a great example where the bears have enough behavioral flexibility to learn. And so if there's individual variability in their response to humans. Some bears are able to take advantage of that food in a way that doesn't annoy people or scare people. They're going to be at a huge advantage. And so that's the exact same process we're suggesting occurred as wolves, uh, a population of wolves began evolving into Mm -hmm. dogs.
0: Brian Harris with us here on Where We Live, Professor, professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Duke University, uh, co-author of this new book, Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity, as we learn more about dog cognition and evolution. I understand you went to Russia to see firsthand how a more of a modern day experiment, looking at how um, dogs have evolved and uh, breeding uh, certain uh, animals, including foxes, uh, to uh, be domesticated. What did you find out?
1: Well, it's a funny story. I was in graduate school and um, I uh, was having an, it was, this was now with my graduate school advisor, my PhD advisor, and we were talking about why dogs are so good at using uh, gestural communication of humans. Um, And I really thought that it was something that uh, had been selected for, that humans had selected dogs that were really good at communicating with him with you know with each other and uh my advisor said well you don't know that uh, you need to go to siberia <laughs> what i need to go to siberia uh and we he was referring to an experiment where a population of foxes had been experimentally domesticated but they had not been selected for their ability to communicate in any special way with humans and he was saying what if they could communicate Uh, You know, as good as dogs, even though they hadn't been selected for communicative ability. And the reason he was suggesting that is because when the foxes were selected, they were selected for friendliness in a way we were talking about a minute ago. And they had a whole bunch of things that happened as an accident of that selection. They had an increase in frequency and curly tails and floppy ears, their um, skulls changed shapes. Their noses or their muzzles got shorter. They had smaller teeth. Uh, their physiology or the chemistry of their um, uh, ability to have social interactions changed. So, uh, serotonin, which is a, a hormone, a neurohormone in uh, the brain and body, it really increased its level, which makes you know animals less aggressive. Um, and has all sorts of other effects on the body. Um, so all these changed hap- all these changes happen because they selected foxes based on their friendliness towards people. If the foxes could be friendly to people, uh, they would breed the foxes that were friendliest to- together uh, each generation, and, co- and they caused genetic change. Um, and so my advisor was basically saying, "Look, you don't know that it was selection for." the ability to communicate with humans, go test these foxes. And maybe just like they have floppy ears and curly tails, they're also better at cooperating and communicating with gestures. And it's just another one of these accidents of selection for friendliness. And that's actually what we found, um, that the foxes were as good as dogs at using these gestures and understanding us, even though the Russians who did this brilliant experiment had never selected them for their mm. ability to communicate with us.
0: That's so interesting, thinking about certain traits that started emerging among these uh, friendlier foxes. They started to look more like pet dogs, the, the cuter version. Not so scary, the, the wild uh, dog in, in, in nature.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so um, uh, they, in many ways, have dog-like features. Now, they're, I wouldn't suggest you think of them as uh, great pets. Um, I think that this is uh, – the the foxes are a great model for what might happen um, because of natural selection when you select for friendliness. Uh, They selected the foxes uh, and they bred these friendly foxes together Um, now for over 50 years. uh, The changes began about the 20th generation. Um, A a generation is a year, so each year they they would choose the friendliest foxes and breed them together. Um, and do it again and again and again. And after about the 20th generation, they started to see big changes, um, both in their behavior towards people and in their appearance uh, and their um, chemistry of their bodies. Um, And so this is kind of the thing that we think um, is a great model for what can happen in nature, that you can have friendlier animals start breeding together um, when friendliness is advantageous and fearful animals that can't be near people, for instance, um, uh, well, they're not breeding with the friendlier animals because they're not staying near people because they're afraid. Um, and so then you can have these changes in body and in um, uh, all sorts of uh, you know physiological parameters uh, as a result. And so th- uh, that's what we think happened uh, in the first stage of uh, dog domestication. But I, I started this by saying, I don't think the foxes would be very good pets. And I think that when we normally think about dogs, for instance, we're thinking about European dog breeds or breeds of dogs from Asia uh, that were artificially selected uh, very, very intensely over the last 100, 150 years. In the case of the Asian breeds, it would be even hundreds of years. Um, But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about dogs that would be more like uh, dogs you'd see in the developing world, uh, maybe village dogs, um, or uh, even dingoes uh, in in Australia. That's what we think this um, selection for friendliness causes. Because the foxes are not uh, ready to, you know, jump in your lap and be fantastic pets. Um, they've just moved in the. They've moved a long way in the direction of um, being like the domesticated dogs we're familiar with that then have been under very intense selection over the last 200 or so years.
0: I want to hear more about the, the social structure uh, among bonobos, but I have to ask, Brian, before we get there, what was it like to be around these domesticated foxes?
1: Well, they are, you know, as a scientist, you're supposed, you're, we're paid to be skeptical, not never cynical, but we're paid mm-hmm. to be skeptical. And so I went, I said, oh, come on, how, how different could they really be? Um, and boy, are they different, uh, the, they kept a control line and I failed to mention that earlier, um, which, which, uh, is it critical to the story. Um, they, they kept a line of foxes for, in the same exact condition, same exact period of time as this, uh, line of foxes that they bred for friendliness and the control line, um, didn't have any of the changes because they bred them randomly for how they interacted with humans. Um, And so that was how they compared and could see that when they selected for friendliness, that these big effects occurred. So I saw both populations. And when you approach the control line foxes, they slink to the back of their rooms. They don't want anything to do with you. If you try to touch them, which I wouldn't recommend um, because it scares them and they, they try to bite you. Um, And then you walk over to these experimental fox um, uh, where their rooms are, and they just want to jump in your arms uh, they are crazy for you to hold them. They just absolutely wag their tail. They make these puppy-like uh, vocalizations. Pick me up, pick me up, please, please, please. And then when you pick them up, they just are so happy and kiss your face. And many of these foxes are, have not been socialized uh, in any uh, way or form. They just are desperate for human contact. Um, so it is remarkable what uh, the experiment did in terms of their behavior.
0: Again, you're hearing Brian Hare here on Where We Live, Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Duke University and co-director of the Duke Canine Cognition Center. He has a new book out, co-author of Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity. We'll talk more with him after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up Thursday on Election Day, Connecticut residents will vote in important races and can Connecticut pull off a polarized COVID-19 election with absentee ballots? In collaboration with Hearst Connecticut newspapers, join me and a panel of journalists and political scientists for Election 2020 at Connecticut Conversation. That's Thursday night, October 29th at 8 p.m. on CPTV, Connecticut Public Radio, and streaming at ctpublic.org. Now, on today's show we've been talking with Brian Hare about dog cognition and evolution. He's professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University and co-author of the new book, Survival of the Friendliest. Uh, Brian, your book looks at why cooperation is a successful strategy in nature. And you've done a lot of research with bonobos, which you mentioned briefly before. Tell us why there's no room for alpha males in the bonobo social structure. (laughs)
1: isn't that fun? The, um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, the thesis of the book really is that when uh, in many situations in nature over and over and over again, you see the same pattern where a new type of friendliness evolves, becomes advantageous. And that then allows for a new type of cooperation that then puts a species or set of organisms at a major, major evolutionary advantage and they spread all over the world. Um, and so, uh, again, uh, survival of the friendliest, if you want to win big in life, find a new way to be friendly that allows for a new type of cooperation. And bonobos are a great example of this. Another, uh, you know, do- we've already covered dogs as an example. Bonobos are another great example. And in terms of no room for alphas, um <laughs> Bonobos and chimpanzees uh, are two closest relatives. It's like having two first cousins. So you can have uh, two cousins. One is a girl, one is a boy. They're equally closely related to you because they're both your first cousins, but they're different from each other. One's a girl, one's a boy. And that's how it is with bonobos and chimpanzees. So that's the important first note is that these two species are our two closest relatives, like we have two cousins. Bonobos... And chimpanzees are super interesting um, on their own, but also in comparison with one another. And one of the things that is interesting is thinking about their social structure. Chimpanzees are famously male dominated, there's always an alpha male. They're competing, uh, males are competing with status uh, for status against each other. They form coalitions with each other. But unfortunately, Uh, That means that there's a lot of uh, aggression towards females and uh, other groups of chimpanzees. They will hunt and kill their neighbors. Uh, Chimpanzees also are famously uh, infanticidal. When you go to uh, look at bonobos, which are almost genetically indistinguishable from chimpanzees, uh, none of those behaviors are present. None of them no bonobo group has ever uh, been observed with an alpha male. uh, And no bonobo group has ever been observed to uh, kill another bonobo. Uh, So there's no murder in bonobos. Uh, Wouldn't that be nice? And uh, finally, the key thing back to your question is, uh, females, um, the, the, the last thing a male bonobo would do is be aggressive towards his own mother Um, And it is very, very rare that uh, male bonobos relative to chimpanzees would do anything to take on uh, a female in the group because females have formed coalitions with each other. And they do not tolerate male aggression. Uh, And because male aggression is not tolerated because uh, two to uh, even three or four female bonobos uh, will take on a male who is trying to be aggressive, uh, towards, uh, another female, um, or more importantly, an infant. Um, and so there's no way, even though that male bonobos are bigger than fe- any one female bonobo they can't, um, take on a coalition of females. And so male aggression has no, no longer pays off, uh, all the cost and the risk of, uh, fighting to be alpha being injured, the energy involved, all those costs no longer have a benefit because females don't tolerate male aggression anymore. And so over a million years, uh, the thinking is that bonobo males have actually gone through genetic change such that the friendliest males were at a huge evolutionary advantage. Um, And that bears out in why their social system uh, is uh, so remarkable.
0: Going back to uh, thinking back to how this relates to us today, uh, Brian, when we think about uh, modern day humans, uh, our ability to collaborate uh, and help and be friendly uh, that sets us apart from some ancient humans like Neanderthals.
1: Well, one of the big surprises in uh, human evolution research over the last ten years, at least, it's it's shaken up how I think about human evolution um, is. You know, generally we think there's this kind of line and, you know, organisms got, you know, species in the human lineage got increasingly sophisticated over time. I mean, that's normally how we think about it. That, is, that doesn't seem to be what it was. Over the last 100,000 years, um, we actually were not alone uh, until the last probably 50, maybe even 25,000 years ago. Um, And what I mean is that if we were to travel in time back to 100,000 years ago, there were four to five other human species, and we were not alone on this planet. And all of those species, except for maybe one, had uh, a brain as large as ours, was almost certainly cultural in the way that we are, um, and likely uh, had linguistic abilities we would recognize as something like our own. Um, So that challenges the way we normally think about why we are different from other animals. Because if you would ask anybody, oh, why are we so different than other animals? You say, oh, we have culture, we have big brains, we're linguistic, whatever. Well, there were four to five other species 100,000 years ago. In fact, um, probably 50,000 years ago um, that had all those same traits. They are all now extinct. So if anything, big brain and language and culture predicts extinction, not success and thriving. And so it had to be something else that explains why our species was so successful and the other human species went extinct. And I think dogs and bonobos point to the answer, which is friendliness and new forms of friendliness can allow for new forms of cooperation. And I think that's what happened in our species. I think we were selected for a type of friendliness that allowed for new forms of cooperation. And we're here as a result of it.
0: Before we run out of time, Brian, I have to ask, is there a dark side to uh, this friendliness that has developed uh, uh, humans who are friendly with people that we perceive to be in our group? And we may feel threatened by those who are not like us or outside of our group. Uh, What do you say about that?
1: So the new form of friendliness that we propose is actually group identity. No other animal has group identity, even chimpanzees and bonobos. Um, they recognize individuals that are strange based on familiarity. Um, we do too, but we do something extra, which is we have this thing called group identity. It's sort of a, a an understanding of what it is that makes me part of a group. Oh, I happen to root for the Duke basketball team, or I, you know, really love, um, you know, the Yukon Huskies, whatever. And so um, that make that's part of my group identity, um, and so um, that allows us cooperate and be friendly in a way that other species can't but it is absolutely and we we go into great detail in the book about how the same exact psychology is what allows us to um uh, be capable of the worst forms of cruelty um as uh we um reject others as not being part of our group if we feel they threaten our identity uh then uh that allows us to morally exclude those individuals. And then we can do horrific things.
0: Mm. Relevant today as our country talks more about racism and xenophobia, Brian. Uh,
1: I I absolutely think that the uh, origins of the problem, if you're asking the question, um, why? Why do we Mm -hmm. keep having these problems? Why are they so persistent? Um, I think that uh, going back and thinking uh, about uh, the evolution of human nature is instructive because we want to nurture our nature uh, in a way that we can uh, be the best and get the uh, have a friendlier future. Uh, and so we take that on in the book about well, given what we've learned, how can we have a friendlier future? Uh, and I think there's some really powerful strategies. I think there's really great research that suggests how to immunize, or, or counteract uh, the worst of human nature and really get uh, the friendly part um, uh, to express itself. Uh, and I think the, m- the most important thing I learned in all of the research and doing, uh, writing the book together with my wife, Vanessa, is cross-group friendships, friendships across group identities, um, especially those that, uh, groups that might feel threatened by each other True friendships, deep, meaningful friendships, act as bridges across different group identities. And it really does p- play a critical role in de escalation um, and reduces the chance for the worst forms of human cruelty to express themselves. Mm-hmm.
0: Sounds like this is a book for all of us. Brian Hare, co-author with Vanessa Woods of Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity. Brian, again, is professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University, co-director of the Duke Canine Cognition Center. Brian, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Lucy.
0: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Today's show is produced by Carmen Baskoff and our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Learn more about the show. Download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. As always, thanks for listening.